There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at 7thGeneration.com. Hello, this is Monica Reinagle, and you're listening to the Nutrition Diva Podcast, a show where we take a closer look at nutrition research, headlines, and TikTok trends to sort fact from fiction and try to chart a saner path to health and well-being. Joining me today on the Nutrition Diva podcast are Yuna Jada and Dr. Eddie Phillips of the hit podcast, and now a new book of the same name, Food We Need to Talk. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us, Monica. Thank you, Monica. When I started listening to your podcast, I immediately recognized that anyone who enjoys my podcast was also going to love yours and hopefully vice versa. I feel like our podcasts were sort of separated at birth. (laughs) (laughs) And now, although my podcast launched about 12 years before yours, so I'm the older sister here. Wow, that's like really ahead of the podcast game. It what we are celebrating our 15th anniversary this month actually. That's so. amazing. <laughs> it is. Nobody saw that coming. <laughs> but now uh and when did yours you're in your year 3 4? Yeah, it's around year 3. I'd say we took a break because of COVID, but if we're technically counting from when we started, it is year 3. And now you have a new book out. So this seems like the perfect time to introduce you both to my listeners, to any of my listeners who may not already have discovered your show. I feel like a lot of them already have. So I'm so glad to have you here. And one of the things I think we have in common on our two podcasts is a real commitment to presenting evidence-based information, but also that awareness or even that humility about the limitations of what we actually know for sure, what we're still figuring out. And of course, the fact that even the best design study isn't going to apply to everyone. It's it's really a tricky line to walk, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's so true. And even when we do have things that are pretty clear scientifically and they make sense. When you think about how studies are conducted and the artificial environment that they create, Mm -hmm. it actually makes so little sense that we like take everything studies say as like the 100% truth because the reality is the world is so much more complicated than what you're doing in a study in a lab for an hour when you go in. Of Um, course. Yeah. Especially when we're talking about dietary pattern studies, you know, and how we eat and why we eat in the real world as opposed to a study where maybe all of our food is being provided for us. But but yeah, even in less complex environments, it's difficult to translate those experimental conditions to the outside world. 
And right now, I feel like there's a lot of talk in the media about nutrition science being broken. You know, there's this credibility crisis going on. There was an op-ed in the Washington Post or the New York Times earlier this week about that. And I feel like those of us who aren't necessarily doing the actual research, but are more in the role of translating or transmitting that information to the general public bear part of the responsibility here. Where do you see yourself fitting into that, that ecosystem? So I'll, I'll, I'll step up first and just say that I don't think that nutrition science is broken. <laughs> I think that the way that we've interpreted some of the studies and I think we're immediately going to jump into the world of the tribalism that you find mm -hmm. in the food and nutrition world mm -hmm. that, uh, <laughs> as we sat down to write the book, we realized that there are folks that are coming to conclusions, looking at different data, but even more alarming, they're looking at the same data and drawing <laughs> very different conclusions. Mm -hmm. And that really doesn't fault the folks that have designed a study uh, either sort of an interventional study, and yes, as you said, it could be done in a lab, which is not hard to generalize, but there are magnificent studies following hundreds of thousands of people for decades, and they show us sort of some immutable facts like trans fat is not good for you. And that's why, uh, through considerable effort, it was removed from the U.S. Uh, food supply back, I think, around 2018. It finally went through. Uh, we know... And we agree on so much more, but that doesn't make the news. And and so I think there's a lot of you know, fluff around the edges, uh, whereas like something like 90% of what we do know is confirmed, does not change regularly. Fruits and vegetables are good for you. <laughs> um, this week as well as last week. <laughs> yes, yes. And, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here. Next week also. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to hold you to that, Eddie. Not according to the liver king. I, I don't know, Monica, have you heard of the liver king? He, like, doesn't eat any fruits and vegetables. He just eats, like, raw liver. <laughs> right, <or laughs> so, the carnivore diet, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it's, I appreciate that observation that although there is a lot of bickering and arguing, and, of course, you can find data to support any pet position that you may want to take, I really appreciate that reflection, Eddie, that we agree on much more than we disagree about. Yeah, and I think on top of that, it really depends on who the information is being translated by. So like you mentioned, um, it's not just that we are reading the same information, but then when we're communicating it, the past that that person has gone through has so much impact on the takeaway they get from that study. So I think about this all the time because when I was really struggling with being overly restrictive with food, I think it would have been so damaging to me to hear any sort of this food is bad for you, you shouldn't eat this because I would take any of that information to an extreme. But then there's also people who maybe aren't paying attention to anything of the eat and maybe they do need to hear that and they just don't know. And so depending on who you are in your past, like I was very careful about not saying things like this, you know, this is really bad for you because of my history with an eating disorder. And then after I'd gotten away from it for a long time and I really didn't feel like it was impacting me so much, I felt less like I had to be so careful about talking about this. But I think everybody brings their own experiences and their own kind of bias towards whatever they're reading. And as an audience, I don't think we think about that a lot when we hear messages. Right. And we bring our bias to the way we communicate. And often we are not aware of our own biases. Like you've just you know, 
given us you know, some awareness about the biases that you are bringing to it. And I think sometimes the most dangerous ones are the ones that we ourselves don't really realize we hold, right? Yes. And there is so much work still to be done to to break down these false dichotomies between good foods and bad foods or healthy diets and everything else, right? (laughs) But, you know, there are valid concerns about things like environmental contamination, forever chemicals that were widely used before we fully understood their impacts on biology, microplastics, whatever. At the same time, I feel like that word toxic is really over overused and poorly understood. I know that I hear so often from listeners who are very, very concerned, usually triggered by some news report or, or media report about toxins and other dangers that they've read about affecting what they eat. So here's a question for you each. Is the food supply on balance safer than people think or more dangerous than people think? What do you think? I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and, and say sort of an adage I heard years ago that calmed me down, which was like, don't pay attention to what you hear in the news because what they're reporting is the sort of unusual thing, meaning right. plane crashes are always going to make the news, but they're extraordinarily rare. Mm-hmm. And and you're you know statistically safer flying in an airplane than driving, but you know we we should really be more fearful of crossing the street. Right. Um, so the you're going to hear about toxins. I believe that the food supply overall is quite safe in this country compared. I don't know if you've traveled recently or traveled to parts of the world where pretty good chance you're going to get sick just from eating the available food. So uh, we, we do have standards. I think there's a piece that pops up here where as Americans, we're really upset if someone does something to us. You know, you snuck <laughs> those forever plastics in our food. I didn't ask for them. They're toxic. It's your fault. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not to blame. But if I make the choice to eat something that I know is not optimal, but it's my choice, then I've got no one else to blame. Mm. So I think there's a little <laughs> bit of that kind of that libertarian streak, like don't mess yeah. with me mm. and we'll be fine. But in, in the quick answer is that the, the food supply is safe. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that when we think about the food supply and the toxins that people are freaking out about, it kind of reminds me of how... um. There's things to worry about that are so much more important and that mm-hmm. impact your health so much more like, hey, guys, like, how about we sleep more than five hours a day? And that person is like, <laughs> but what about what about the, the microplastics in my kale? I won't, like, I won't have time to, to, to worry if I yeah. get from the sleep. <laughs> right. Like, it's like there's so many more important things. Like, I guarantee you would even if there were toxins, like, let's say there was the effect they're having on your health is like point oh 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 five percent compared to all the other things that we could be doing that have such a greater impact. Yes. Like I hear people obsessing about whether their ketchup has high fructose corn syrup in it. And meanwhile, that's their only vegetable. For the day, and and we understand that ketchup is a vegetable. I think we established that years ago, <laughs> according to the government. Yeah, I think that was the Reagan industry or the Reagan yes, administration. Yes, yes. But, well, you know, nutrition and biology and physiology are so complex. You know, so many teeny tiny little molecules and cells getting up to no good. But when you back up the lens a little bit, I feel like it often is simpler than we make it. I mean, I've found that. I mean, you could so easily get lost in the weeds or or just paralyzed by a lot of conflicting options. So it feels like any move is wrong. 
attention to the right handful of things, so much else will fall into place by itself. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, I totally agree. And if you think about the people in our society who are the healthiest in our societies, I should say like the blue zones, right? Those people aren't like writing down everything they eat and researching the most optimal diet and whatever. The most nutritious way to cook their vegetables, right? Yes. It's like they're just eating what they always have been eating in that region. They're spending time together and they live an active life and that's pretty much it. And I sometimes think the people that stress about it the most are like doing more damage by the stress of the nutrition. And I see this personally, like I know people who freak out about their nutrition so much and on paper, their nutrition might look so perfect, but I know their lives are so stressful that I'm like, I just, I don't think this is leading to an optimal lifespan or an optimal health span or whatever. Yeah. Well said. And, you know, this is the other thing that I really appreciate about your approach in the podcast and in the book is that acknowledgement and even the celebration of the fact that food serves a lot of really valuable and completely valid roles in our lives and in our culture beyond just being a source of nutrients and energy for our body. I mean, food is fuel, but it's so much more. And to pick up on that, uh, just the fact that the three of us are of like mind, and hopefully the listeners are talking about food and not the nutrients, not, you know, breaking (laughs) down and, and stressing over how much oil and fat am I getting versus how much protein versus how much carbs and, and sort of micromanaging things. Mm -hmm. Um, when you talk about food, people should, and this is for the millennia of human existence, it was what drew us together. And we're hyper social beings. And to come to sit down and break bread, if you eat it. Um, if you, if <laughs> careful there, oh, careful. Right, 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 exactly. You know, but the expression was breaking bread. Um, you can break other things. Um, that, that it was a sense of community. It was a place to share. Because I, I think uh, potluck dinners is not a new thing. Mm-hmm. I think it was sort of like, what did you catch today? What did you find in your in your journey? What seeds? Did you actually get some honey? You know, what, what roots, what berries can you bring to the table? And everyone would share. And we are so much need to be with each other. And, you know, what a shame if food is actually dividing us somehow now, because I can't eat with you because you want to go to a whole foods plant-based restaurant and I'm on a keto diet. Right, And it's just like, that's, that's, that's maddening. Well, and I think that we've also gotten to the point where people have a mistrust of food that, that they enjoy. Like if I, if I like it, if it's tasty, then it's probably not good for me. You know, we've kind of convinced ourselves that in order to be healthy, we have to forego just the, the pleasure of food. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I remember... Um, when I was being really careful about what I was eating and we would have family gatherings. So my family's Albanian. So whenever we'd have Christmas or Easter, stuff like that, my mom would make baklava and barek. And there was years where I'd be like, no, I can't eat that. No, I can't eat that because I didn't measure it. And no, it's mm. made with flour, whatever, whatever. And I just remember feeling so horrible, like sitting at the table watching everybody else have it besides me and noticing that like nobody else was as stressed about it as I was. Also, nobody else was struggling with their weight as much as I was. And Mm. yet I was the one freaking out and being so restrictive. And I was, in retrospect, I think I was so much 
less healthy than everybody else, even though, quote unquote, I was being more healthy by saying no to these things. Human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at 7thGeneration.com. Meet Janice. Unfortunately, her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns. I literally sneezed 40 times in a row once. Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart Pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes, fast with online pickup or delivery. No more suffering? That's nothing to sneeze at. (laughs) I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. Well, you know, Yuna, in the book and also in the podcast, you share quite a bit, as you are right now, about your own personal story and listening to you, it, it's so striking how easily that pursuit of physical health can be so damaging to our mental and emotional health. Yeah. And I, I never considered that emotional and mental health were part of health. Like to me, it was like, I have to look a certain way. I have to be a certain size, be a certain weight. And that to me was health. And health was not even, I think, a main part of the pursuit. It was like a weight was the main part of the pursuit. And in retrospect, when I think about how miserable I was, how I was always saying no to things with friends and I wouldn't go to parties and I wouldn't drink. And when my friends would want to go, I'd be like, "Mm, I don't know if there's food there. I don't want to go. Basically, I was like, what is the point of being whatever weight you want to be and being miserable and alone? Like, what what exactly did you achieve with that? And I don't know. It took me so long to actually think about the fact that, like, okay, the weight is not actually what I'm searching for. Like, actually... What I'm really upset about is that I feel unhappy with myself. And for some reason, I had it in my head that the weight was the key to changing that. Sure. And I think similarly, when people are focused on weight, and they may have valid reasons, their their weight may, in fact, be posing certain risks to their health. But that achieving a healthy weight is less about how you will look. And at least I like to encourage people to think about less how I will look when I weigh this weight and more about what will I be able to do with this body when it is a little leaner, a little stronger, a little lighter. Where will that, what will that make possible for me? And sometimes we're so focused on what size will I be wearing? What will I look like in the mirror? We forget about the actual payoff. There's, I think, an important point that you're making, Monica, which is you're gently pulling the camera back a little bit. So we have a broader view in realizing Mm -hmm. that even food is only one of the behaviors that allow us to be healthy. Uh, Yuna has hinted at, you know, we've got to get enough sleep and we have to uh, manage our stress. And we could talk very happily and endlessly about exercise. Mm -hmm. And we've mentioned relationships and uh, it's all good and you're doing all these wonderful things, but if you're still smoking cigarettes or vaping, well, maybe there's some room for improvement there as well, let alone our spiritual goals, and and we could, we could go on. So I think it helps, and this is what I do with, with my patients, and we have a program nationally that we do through the Veterans Health Administration where we ask people to look at the totality of these behaviors 
sort of rate themselves. Where are you now? Where would you like to be? And very often, even though there's a goal somewhere in the food uh, realm, people are actually much happier to get started with, well, let me just drink a little more water and get to bed 15 minutes earlier and go for a walk after lunch. And they start to see changes and their confidence goes up. That's another thing we're hinting at, that people have lost their confidence when it comes to food. Mm -hmm. We may more easily find that confidence in some other less fraught activities. And then borrow on that as we turn our attention to other realms. Yes, yes. Well, Eddie, you're known as one of the founders of lifestyle medicine, which is sort of what you're describing here. And the idea that the way we live, not just how we eat, all those choices that we make have perhaps more influence on our long-term health than anything else. And on the one hand, it's an, a very empowering and motivating message to think that so much is within my control. I can prevent, the number that's often thrown away around is 80%. I can present mm -hmm. 80% of the diseases that might limit or shorten my life simply by making healthy lifestyle choices. You mentioned, you know, our libertarian streak here in the States, you know, it's all up to me. I get to, <laughs> I get to decide. So it is empowering and motivating, but I do see two potential problems with this message. And one is that we often lose sight of the fact that some people can do everything right and still end up dealing with serious medical issues, even end up with dealing with that issues that we label as lifestyle diseases. Although in their case, we can't point to anything about their lifestyle that wasn't ideal. Mm -hmm. And then, so now they're coping with a diagnosis Plus, they might feel like they've failed or it's their fault, or they may be afraid that others will be thinking that about them, that they are now dealing with a disease because they didn't live well enough. How do we harness the power of that message without inadvertently blaming people who do end up sick? So let me start off on sort of the grandest scale possible. No matter how well we live, even if we're afforded the privilege to do everything and we actually take care of it, um, I'm going to predict with pretty good assurity that you're still going to die at some point. Right. And, and you know, that's the end. It's, um, it's a blessing or a curse of humanity that we're the only species that knows that our days will end. Um, we have so little control over so many things, death, one of them, but we could back up and say even the environment that we live in is obesogenic, which yeah. is kind of a fancy term for it. just living in America makes you heavier. <laughs> we can cite the data on it. I think we've successfully we exported that, <laughs> we, that we, lifestyle. We, yeah. we have, yep. And we continue to export it. It's one of our biggest exports. Um, it's also a sedentary uh, mm -hmm. uh, society. We need to, at all costs, get away from victim blaming, in part, because it's a bad thing to do. But another part, like everyone has something to work on. So there's an exercise I do when I talk to audiences, which are almost always uh, clinicians, and I actually have them stand up and, you know, say, you can keep on standing, but, you know, if you don't smoke, and most of them are still standing, you can keep on standing if you eat five fruits and vegetables a day on average. And then a bunch of them sit down and they go on. Are you doing your resistance training? The point of this whole thing is by the end, there's precious few people that are still standing. And they may feel a little bit self-righteous, 
like, oh, I, I sort of ran the gauntlet. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting enough sleep. I'm lifting weights twice a week and, and all the things that we've talked about. And yet then I sort of turn to them and they, and they have something to work on. You know, maybe, maybe they need to call their mother more. Maybe they, they need to work on their personal development and, you know, consider their, why they're on this planet and whether they're making a contribution. So I, so in answer to your question, just to round this out, I would say that we at all costs need to avoid this stigmatizing other people. Um, famously, we talk about even in the world of weight stigma with two thirds of our population, either overweight or being obese, according to the BMI, that the the health consequences of that are less than being stigmatized for being for being in a bigger body. Sure. That the the social implications, the uh, the the economic implications are all worse than any medical problem. So I think we need to avoid the stigma. Let's look to ourselves. Let's have some compassion for others and for ourselves. I grew up. My mom was never really overweight, and we've always kind of eaten a pretty Mediterranean diet because, like I said, we came from Albania. So we never grew up with, like, processed food or much processed food in the house. I mean, there was some, obviously. But I would say it was a relatively healthy diet. And she developed diabetes uh, pretty early on into coming to the United States. So I was very well aware from a young age that um, just the way you eat or just your weight are not the things that are going to be impacting your health. Um, and then similarly with my sisters, like me and my sisters grew up in the same household and I have always been heavier than my sisters, no matter what we've done. And my sisters have such a sweet tooth. They love desserts. And it's just always been that my body's been different. So I feel like I was aware from a very young age that there's other things that play into your health than just your own behaviors. Um, I guess I usually take the mindset of, okay, well, I want to like me trying to be healthier or trying to eat better is probably going to be better than me not. But it doesn't mean that my health is going to be able to be compared to somebody else's. So I try to just make the best choices for myself. But I feel like seeing those examples from a young age just made it very clear to me that you can't ever blame somebody for some health problem that they're having. Yes. Well said. And you know, I, I, I said I, I see two potential issues, and you, you sort of hinted at one of them, Eddie, and that is that a lot of lifestyle medicine promotion seems to overlook the fact that at all of these healthy choices are not always equally available to people. And we need to remember that you know, increasing access to the healthy choices that we are promoting and trying to uh, publicize, it has to be part of the work. Absolutely. Uh, so a few years ago, when I was running one of my lifestyle medicine conferences, so these are run through Harvard Medical School, and I made a plea to the audience. And I said, if you think there's something we're missing, just, you know, come up to me. This We were actually meeting in person, so this was doable. Please come up to me and, and tell me, you know, what we need to include next year. This was about eight years ago. And there were three people in a row that came up to me and they looked at me and they go, we need to talk about the underserved populations, mm. you know, how to make this available. And it was sort of one, one, two, three. And I was like, have you guys been in cahoots with each other? Like, <laughs> I, and, 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 and since then, we have a dedicated slot in our two-day program to lifestyle medicine for underserved populations. And similarly, 
at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, that is a very strong theme. And what's interesting is that changing the health behaviors or the food available to populations that ordinarily, for instance, would not be able to get fruits and vegetables by by working in the community to get excess produce from, let's say, a farmer's market or from a, a farm brought in and distributed to populations that otherwise would not have access has so much more of an impact than getting one of my well-heeled patients to go to the gym an extra time per week. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it demonstrably changes their lives. And, and some of my colleagues have these beautiful studies going on showing that just providing the fruits and vegetables, and we'll add in a little bit of uh, culinary skills, has a, a direct and immediate impact on, on the health of the kids that are, that are now trying something for the first time. So 100%, Monica, it's got to be available to everyone. It has to be democratized. And we do it to improve the general health of the population, which makes for a better society. And also, uh, we need to have everyone healthy. Otherwise, we end up paying for it anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very short-sighted <laughs> to not be taking that view. I remember one time we interviewed someone, Monica, on um, one of our episodes, James Levine, and he was working at the Cleveland Clinic. And he had said prior to that, he would always, you know, tell his patients, oh, you need to exercise more, you need to go on walks more, blah, 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 the usual advice. And when he moved there, there was mm -hmm. a much different population who grew up in a much lower socioeconomic part of the city. And he said he felt so stupid for, like, even thinking to bring up the idea of like you need to walk more when these people could not safely walk in their neighborhoods like you can't you only walk when you have to go to work or you have to come home you can't just leisurely walk around and he just felt so like what are we doing when the the majority of people probably just actually can't follow some of these guidelines that we're reporting um yeah. Yeah. And I think we just need to all continually remind ourselves, look for those blind spots and call each other out when we inevitably and innocently fall into them. You know, it will take some teamwork to uh, to overcome what is that very real bias of our own experience. Right. And not only that, but I think, yes, we always fall into talking to people who have maybe the most similar lifestyle to our own. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm talking to people who I'm like imagining a younger version of myself when I'm doing the podcast. But we also need to think about the fact that the types of people that seek out this information are also probably the people that need it the least right. in the sense that like I, I just think the people that really need to hear this just aren't really looking for it and it's not in their purview. It's it's just not – I don't know. There there has to be a better way to get the people who really need the information um, to be exposed to it and not just the people who are seeking it out because in all likelihood, like, those people are already going to the gym and, you know, buying fruits and vegetables and cooking. And or if they're so not, on. they're at least feeling appropriately guilty about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Eddie and Yuna, you have a hit podcast. You have a new book that I predict is going to be sitting on top of some important lists very soon. As we wrap up, I want to know what's next for you, either as a team or maybe individually. So we are happily ensconced in this wonderful podcast realm, um, and we are inspired by your longevity. Congratulations on 15 years of <laughs> Thank podcasting. Thank you. That's amazing. Did you coin the phrase? I mean, 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> she came up with podcasting. Um, and, and that's keeping us pretty 
busy right now. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting the reactions from individuals who will come to see the book, listen to the book, get it out of the library, borrow it from someone, just sort of, you know, share the the knowledge that we've collected. Um, we are um, interested in hearing from people about more of what they need. In other words, like, I, I think we have a population in our podcast uh, listenership of, of folks that as they listen to us, as they listen to the Nutrition Diva, that, you know, the more we hear what they need, the more we, the we can provide them. So I'm leaving it a little bit open. Um, it's just like when I walk in the room with a patient, the agenda is theirs. And I'd like to sort of offer myself up um, or our team up as uh, kind of the vessel that will bring the knowledge, the skills, the confidence to live your healthiest life. Well, Eddie is very altruistic in case you can't tell Monica. <laughs> well, no, it's a good strategy, Eddie, because that's how we made it to 15 years was uh, very quickly we started hearing from the listeners about what mm-hmm. they needed to know next. And I went into this project thinking, I don't know, after a year or two, I'll probably have run out of things to talk about and needn't have worried. <laughs> so how about you, Yuna? <laughs> Um, okay. Yeah. So I just want to also shout out that Eddie is like a real doctor that sees patients all day. I just like, I think it's insane that Eddie is able to squeeze this into his real job. It's just so cool. Um, so yes, the podcast is continuing. I think we are continually getting, uh, better and better guests. I'm so excited because there's always people who I've like looked up to in the industry for a long time that are coming on the podcast and it makes me so happy. Um, and then in terms of the other stuff, I am very excited to start posting on TikTok again. I love TikTok. It's, it's my favorite thing that I do. And I've had to take a pause because of all the crazy book stuff and podcast stuff. So I'm going to be very excited to make videos again, mostly gym videos because I'm a little bit obsessed with the gym and uh, snowboarding. But I, yeah, that's it. Well, actually, I happened across your YouTube video of, of your chin-ups or your pull-ups. Oh, yeah. And I was like... <laughs> Wow, you're my new hero. I'm still <laughs> working on the shrugs. <laughs> well, thank you so much both for joining me. Congratulations on the new book. I have two copies of it on my desk now because we had a little uh, mix up with the publisher and and I ended up with two copies. So one of them this weekend I am taking up to my county library to donate to their oh, collection oh, so that you. our local listeners won't have to wait for the library to order it, there will be a copy in there soon. But Wow, thank you. Wish you all the best. And now that this conversation has started, I hope we can keep it going. Yes, thank you so much for having us. This is Monica Reinagel for the Nutrition Diva Podcast. If you have a nutrition-related question that you'd like me to answer, you can email it to me at nutrition at quickanddirtytips.com. And you can also leave me a message at 443-961-6206. I'd also like to invite you to check out my other podcast. It's called The Change Academy, where we explore the art and science of creating positive behavior change, both in our own lives and in our workplaces and communities. You can find it on all the major podcast platforms. Just search for Change Academy. Nutrition Diva is a quick and dirty tips podcast. My team includes our director of podcasts, Adam Cecil, audio engineer, Nathan Sems, Davina Tomlin, who runs our marketing and publicity, Holly Hutchings, our digital operations specialist, and Morgan Christensen, our podcast operations and advertising specialist. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week. Psst. 
human nature can get a little messy, but nature nature is powerful enough to save us from ourselves. Seventh generation laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with a 97% bio-based formula. For when you think whipping up yellow curry chicken in white pants is a great idea, totally not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at 7thGeneration.com.